Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we had died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may grab a seat. Before we return to Mark, we are going to take a one-week kind of moment to talk about baptism. So the reason for this is I feel like we've had, I've had several conversations with parents, with some of our young kids, a few of our youth, where it's kind of in the air. And we talked about having maybe a little baptism class for people that might be interested. And then uh, Aaron pushed us. He was like, maybe we should have a whole sermon about it and let, invite everyone into it. And so that sat well with me. And so we're doing that. And part of the two is baptism is a great kind of theme to work through during a, se- a season of Lent and Easter. So Lent is a season of preparation to receive what Christ is going to give us through the cross and resurrection. It's a time of humbling, a time of receiving, a time of dependence, and coming to grips with our dependence on Jesus. And that's one aspect of baptism that we'll be covering. Uh, But then we also look forward to Easter, to new life, to Christ being raised from the dead, and us, as we come up out of the water, are participating in that resurrection as well. And so Easter and Lent season is a good season to sit in baptism and to begin to invite you all to consider and thinking about baptism as well. And so I'm curious what you think of when you think of baptism. Do good thoughts come to mind? Or does it feel like a source of division? Does it feel like a confusing and arcane ritual? Uh, Does it feel like a a should, a duty, an obligation? Does it feel like, uh, do do you think of your own baptism? Do you think of baptisms that you've witnessed? Does it seem kind of strange to you? that we would have a core ritual in the church in which we basically take a public bath uh, quickly in front of people. It seems kind of odd to you, uh, to me as well. And so sometimes I like to cut through all that by thinking about my own baptism. I remember being about eight years old um, and was uh, going over to my friend's house. I was kind of new, uh, newly free to go to my friend's house alone, about first grade, and went to my friend's house. He had an older sister, and she brought it upon herself to teach us all the cuss words. It was an outstanding learning process. She was nice, kind of really uh, methodically educated us on all the cuss words and, and cuss movements. And so my friend and I thought it would be wise if we should start to practice these things. And so we made it a point that when we got together to school, we would practice uttering said cuss words around each other. And then we thought, we shouldn't just keep this in the house. This needs to be taken out of the house. And as we are like practicing these cuss words, I'm starting to feel that initial like warring conscious within. And so I'm like, but that's okay. I want to do what I want to do. We don't have to tell someone about this. And so uh, we took it outside the house. We were like, I can't wait. Next time a car drives by, we're going to do practice one of the symbols uh, that your sister taught us. And so one, a car drove by. And, you know, what would a good, nice suburban neighborhood be if you didn't have a first grader uh, flipping the bird uh, to a stranger driving by? And so I chose to do that. 
and I uh, thought we would get away with it, but this car did a swift U-turn, and I'm like hitting the dirt, and uh, the bike is very slow compared to a car. I learned that, and uh, at that point, uh, this person kind of really punked us out for said symbol, and my con this was the first time that I felt like my conscience was kind of torn up. I don't know if you remember the first time you felt like a warring in your conscience, a sense of like, ugh, something's not quite right in there, a burning and a felt need to confess. And so I wasn't very good at keeping secrets and told my parents uh, exactly what happened. But I remember then I was baptized about six months after that. And I think that there was a connection between a sense of the first sense of need, the first sense of what sin feels like. And I'm making connections in that all the people who love me love Jesus. And those people that love me and love Jesus regularly refer to baptism as a way to meet Jesus where he's ready to give us the gift he wants to give us. And so I made that choice to be baptized and receive it then and still recall that time. And of course, anytime you make a choice to be baptized or any kind of choice, you don't quite know fully what you're doing. And I feel like I knew enough to know I need Jesus and he's meeting me in the waters to give me what I need from him, to give me what he wants to give him. And of course, the rest of the Christian life is working that process out. And so I want us to, uh, to be invited into this conversation to cut through the division or the sense of confusion and to, uh, to, to learn a fresh baptism. And I'm kind of imagining different groups here as you're in that process. For some of you, you've not ever made the choice to follow Jesus. And for you, baptism is that entry point. You're weighing it. You're here sometimes. I'm thinking about a youth in here that are still deciding if this is who they want to be. If you want to receive Jesus as your Lord, your parents are showing it to you. Our church is showing it to you. But one day you have to own that. And baptism is the place to consciously own that. And so if you're stewing on, making that choice to own your faith and receive from the Lord, this sermon's for you to start to think through this, the choice that I'm ready to make. Um, for some of you, you are, you've already been baptized, but you are parents, and you're thinking, like, I need to have these conversations with my kids. And so um, we have these baptism books that I had a friend uh, wrote one time, or wrote a while back for a ministry he does. Great thing to walk through with your kids if they're, like, second or third grade through maybe middle school, where you can kind of do some stuff with them. But then there's a section at the end for them to kind of own on their own, to work through on their own. And we can talk about that as well. And Megan can, can work through that as well. So if you're kind of already been baptized, you're thinking about how to talk about this with your kids without pushing it. It's an invitation for them to join in. Uh, this sermon can kind of maybe help that process. Um, for the rest of you that just have been baptized in general, this is a chance to remember and recall like I just did. To remember your baptism and see that one moment as like the pinnacle of your faith life that you kind of that kind of grounds all future faith choices. The kind of decisions we make is rooted in baptism. The conversations we've just been having on sexuality don't make any sense if we're not reflecting through our sense of total dependence and surrender in baptism, total receiving what Jesus has to give us. It doesn't make sense unless we recall that. It doesn't make sense to deal with our various successes and failures in the Christian life without seeing it through the lens of baptism. It doesn't make sense to engage in the kind of things that, that uh, Lisa and Katie were talking about up here with um, racial division in the church and those kind of things without seeing it through the lens of baptism and how that unifies us. And so to remember our baptism is a big deal. I think about like when I'm preached at a wedding, many times the sermon is not for the actual couple being married. They're standing right in front of me and they're not thinking about what I'm saying at all. And I'm remembering a word. But I'm more thinking of the people who have already been married in the, in the crowd that are remembering their vows. They're like, oh, I remember that time when I made these vows. And you're remembering that to kind of root you again in the promise you've made. And so if you've made that choice to be baptized, 
you then make everything else in life is filtered through that initial bow, that initial submission. And then, of course, this is where there's a point of division and confusion. You may have been raised in a tradition where you come to faith uh, in, a, in, a, in a tradition that doesn't practice baptism or practices infant baptism, and you have no memory of this, of choosing it yourself, but yet you've lived a life of faithfulness. And so it's weird to imagine baptism, which in the New Testament is associated with like a starting point, to kind of like go backwards. But I invite you to consider anew the gift you may experience by being baptized if you're a faithful person that has never been baptized. In my ministry, about 13 years of ministry, I've never walked a person to the choice of being baptized that had been sprinkled as an infant that didn't later have a sense of strong gratitude that they made that choice. It's a memorable gift to participate in a rich symbol that Jesus has given us to experience his love as embodied creatures. And it gives you a tangible, permanent memory of receiving that sense of death and resurrection with Jesus in front of the faith community. And even if you've been faithful your whole life, it's still worth uh, to, to make that choice and let that kind of be the lens through which you kind of understand your life of faith up to that point and the life of faith to come. So those are the groups I imagine. I imagine you could find yourself in one or more of those groups as we engage in this. And so kind of the two points I want to talk about is the example and command of Jesus regarding baptism and talk about baptism as an invitation to participate in Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, I'm going to maybe switch that language up throughout to be a gift to unify in Jesus' death and resurrection. So let's first talk about the example and command of Jesus. All four Gospels have a passage like this when Jesus himself gets baptized. It says in Luke's version, I love this, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. This was with regard to John the Baptist's ministry. He's called the Baptist because he was introducing a new kind of purity washing. For the Jewish people, it was not uncommon for them to participate in ritual purity washings where they may baptize themselves, but it was always something done to the self. The self would walk down into a pool or water or something and wash themselves. The unique thing about John's baptism was it had to be something you received. It was done to you. It's like the anti-work, the anti-effort. It's literally releasing and, and opening yourself up to receive that. It's something that is done to you. And so what's interesting is why was Jesus receiving something to be done to him? He did not need to be baptized. He had no sin in him. And John's baptism was a baptism of repentance uh, to, to, to kind of prepare the people to receive the Messiah. It has a sense of need and dependence. So why would Jesus be baptized? And most people think it's because Jesus became like us in solidarity with us, representing us in every way but the sin, fully joining and participating in solidarity with us and union with us in every way. So then when we start to think about our baptism, we are en engaging in that same sense of solidarity with Jesus as well. So as the Messiah, he is the representation of humanity. He's doing this, everything he does, he does as our representative in solidarity with us and on our behalf. And he is told, kind of confirmed, that he is God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And that then gets flipped around to us when we get baptized. We then enjoy a solidarity with him. We are showing our solidarity with him and get that same sense of declaration of our adoption into God's people. And so I'll talk about that here in a minute. But for now, let's note, too, that word baptized just means put under the water. 
Baptize is a, what's called a transliterated word, which just takes the Greek letters that makes the same sound as our English letters and puts it like this. Because uh, by the time we have an English translation, we have a, a long history of baptism not being practiced as conscious people being put under the water. And so if they say all the people were being put under the water, Jesus was also dunked and put under the water, people, it's hard for them denominations that do the sprinkling and the pouring and the infant baptism to be like, oh, I don't know how we fit into that. And so the English translations were like, let's just make a new word, baptism, to be like, so it kind of can cover the whole umbrella. But if we're kind of thinking about being biblical people, it's like, what did they actually do back then? They were conscious people being dunked under the water, which is really important for the symbolism that we'll talk about in a moment. So for now, it's a solidarity with, with our people. And this is his example. Wouldn't you want to do something that Jesus does? Why wouldn't we want to do what Jesus does? It, I don't even really like wine, but when I hear that Jesus drank wine, I'm like, perhaps I should learn to drink wine because Jesus did. Jesus was a carpenter. I'm terrible with woodworking, but I'm like, if Jesus did that, I want to be like him, man. So why not? So this is a thing like, why wouldn't you want to do what Jesus did? And for us, I would imagine, what's just a symbol? It's just, a, it's just an arcane ritual. Jesus probably walked on foot 70 miles to experience this. Something tells me it's more than just a symbol. It's something to be taken pretty seriously. If Jesus walked this long to receive that, it might be pretty serious uh, for us as well. We can see some of the seriousness of it in Jesus' command. Uh, we've kind of hit this passage a little bit the past few weeks to just note Jesus' authority. Uh, at the end of his, uh, after he was raised from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, uh, Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's all his. He runs the show. It all belongs to him now. So what to do? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That is the command. And if you're like, what does make disciples mean? Make followers of Jesus. Make pupils of Jesus. Make uh, students of Jesus. Apprentices of Jesus. That involves two pieces. The first is baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as an entry point to make that choice following after that is you teach them to obey everything I commanded you. That is like the discipleship process in a nutshell. And so Jesus set the example to receive baptism. All of his disciples did as well. He then commanded, everywhere you're going to go from here, witnessing to me in my life, death, and resurrection, I want anyone that responds to that message positively, you should baptize them. They should be dumped by you. It should be an act that they receive. And so that alone is enough to me our whole faith life is rooted in Jesus' life teachings, uh, death, and resurrection. And so why wouldn't we practice that? Why wouldn't we receive this gift? And so on that note, I want to talk about that it is a gift, not just a ritual, not just a symbol, not just a reflection, but a gift, a free gift to meet Jesus, to unite with Jesus in his death and resurrection. It's a gift to unite with Jesus in his death and resurrection. So first here, I, I want to talk about this uniting with Jesus. All these slides from Romans kind of reflect this, these uh, emphasis. First, Paul says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul's assumption when he's writing to the Romans to recall their baptism, he's presuming, A, if you are a Christian, you've been baptized, and B, you can remember it that all of us is assuming if you're a Christian, you've been baptized, and you can recall that experience because he's wanting to play off that experience to help them remember the choice they've made so they can keep living into the choice they've already made. And so part of the 
to see it as a union with him. Watch how much through this passage you see stuff like in Christ, into Christ, with him, just as Christ had this experience, you too, that when we meet Jesus in the waters in baptism, we are fully uniting with him. And that union has two parts. It involves a death and a resurrection. We are baptized into his death. We are buried with him when we are dunked. And we are then raised with him to live a new life. So every action that is like our part in the baptism is a form of death. It is a self-emptying. Again, it is the anti-work. It is not an effort. It is an act of receiving a gift. It is, uh, it is not quite effort, but I think it would all fit under the umbrella of a death, of a loss of self in order to let Jesus run the show. And all the benefits of baptism, which we'll talk about, flow from this sense of uniting in Jesus' resurrection. And so let's kind of walk through a few of those now. Verse 5, for if we have been, again, united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So let's talk about this death in the sense of an old self being crucified. Baptism is seen as the moment when your life is broken into two. Before baptism, you are the autonomous ruler of your life. You are at the center of your choices. You are making decisions flowing from what you uh, think is best. And sometimes that is a communal decision, that we as a community have this at the center of of ourselves. Probably in that culture, have more communal sense. In our culture that's highly autonomous and independent, we are the pilots of our own life. We place ourselves at the center. It's an act of self-assertion, kind of a pride that this is my life, I can do what I want. We may see, though, in our culture, instances of self-hatred and self-rejection. It's still centered on the self. So whether we see people or embrace a sense of insecure self-rejection or prideful self-assertion, either way, the self is at the center. What happens in baptism is the, the self is decentered. You're buried, and we leave your old self in the water, drained out the back door. That's our baptism here is only slightly better than the one in my last church, where we fill it up with a hose, and we dunk you in there, and the imagination is that when you come back out, the self that had you at the center is no more. And instead, what we have is a new life, animated with Jesus at the center. This makes sense for all the rest of the Christian life moving forward. If you don't have baptism and all that it would represent, you then imagine that the rest of the Christian life is kind of bolting Jesus' stuff onto the outside of your life. It's like one more piece of your self-improvement track, or like your goal of self-discovery and self-actualization. You kind of pull from Jesus to continue to assert the self. But instead with baptism you recognize that the true self is not whatever's coming from within, but what it is to be seen and known and loved by God. The true self is who you are under the gaze of a God who loves you. That's who the real self is. That's where the true freedom comes when you imagine then that me having the burden of being the author of my life is gone in the water 
And when I come out of that water, I am now fully animated by God, by what he wants. And it's not a sense of self-renunciation, like I'm a slave. It's more like I am now belong to Jesus and have all the rights and fulfillment and blessings and benefits that come with that belonging. One such benefit is that you are now freed from the power of sin. That sin is not just like, I make some mistakes, here's my list of bad choices. It's a kind of a power that just drapes on you, that just lingers on you, that governs your choices and filters your your interpretation of reality. That you are now no longer have to engage in a life of selfishness because God has freed you from that power. You are not defined by that power anymore. It too, with the old self, is gone in the water. We drained it out the back and it's not coming back. You are now not marked by that power any longer. It is gone. We got rid of the water, and you are new, and now even if sin is still around you, it does not have power over you. Even if you were to engage in a sinful choice, it no longer marks you. It's gone and in the water. You're a new person now, no longer marked by the power of sin, and you are now freed to engage with life with God. Keep going. It says, now if we die with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Notice more with language. You're with Jesus in all this. You're like totally in him and him in you. All that's happening in baptism. We believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So now no longer does sin have power over you, but now death doesn't have power over you either. So much of the human life is a sense of resistance to this death that just lingers, a fear of what's to come where our life just stops. We have a sense of nihilistic numbing to that reality or an attempt to kind of overcome and pretend we're not all dying. Let's get some surgery. Let's put some makeup on. Let's do a new improvement plan. Let's start working out. Let's do all the kinds of things to our bodies to make ourselves believe we aren't actually all dying. But here's a real uh, surprising news for us all. Everybody's going to die. It's coming. Everybody's going to die. And baptism tells us that that coming death does not define our ultimate reality. It is not the end. The end is life with God. And we get that clarity, that certainty, that confidence when we receive baptism and come up out of the water. So the old self was marked by sin and death. If you're like, no, I'm not marked by sin and death, I do what I want. The scriptures would tell us that a life without Jesus running the show is a life with sin and death running the show. That we are all under the curse of Adam and Eve, and yet baptism is where we meet Jesus to receive the gift, to be freed from those powers into new life. So I'm going to start to mention more ways in which the actions that we do at baptism are associated with this dying to self, and the benefits are associated with this resurrection of life. Peter, in Acts 2, you may recall, throws down an outstanding sermon, the first sermon uh, of the church. He throws it down, and uh, the dream of every preacher is realized when 3,000 people are like, what can we do now? It's like, man, how nice would it be to throw down a sermon, and like, people just sprinting up the aisle to be dunked. That's what happened. They're like, what should we do? What is our response to this news? Peter's first reply is to repent, which is a sense of the death to self of turning around. I was going this way in life and seeing this is what matters and this is my approach and this is my value system and I am the author of that all and the pilot of it and now I'm going to turn this way to instead run towards Jesus. 
It marks the whole life of that. And baptism becomes the place where we reflect this newfound intention to turn away from sin, from death, from, the, from the, the false self, and instead turn to Jesus. And when we do that, in the name of Jesus, we receive forgiveness for all sins, past, present, and future. There's sometimes confusion with baptism that, like, oh, gosh, I, you know, I did my sin before baptism, and now I've been baptized, and praise God, I got a new start, and then, like, Monday I'm sinning again. I mean, eight-year-old me was like, do I need to do this every week now? But this is saying, you're forgiven once and for all. You don't have to keep being, you're forgiven in full for sins past, present, and future when you be baptized. And this is the big one. You then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in the New Testament, in the Bible, God is everywhere. You can't escape his gaze. He's seeing everything. But he finds a place to dwell uniquely in the human world. There's always a spot where heaven and earth intersect with God's emanating life-giving, personal presence where he is where he really wants to be. In the Old Testament, that was the temple, and then it became Jesus' own body, and through his death and resurrection, it could become your body. For though God is everywhere, sees all things, when you receive baptism, he then comes to take up space in your body now. So that whole living life without the power of sin, it happens because God is in your body. Like, where is God? He lives inside of you. And that's why Jesus is able to make the promise to say, when I go away from you, it's better because I won't just be with you, I'm going to be in you. And baptism is where that gift is realized. We meet him in the waters for him to give us that gift of wiping away our sins once and for all and giving us the gift of his spirit that's ready to not just mark us as new people, but, but help make real in our bodies what is already true uh, in, in God's mind and in the spirit. Notice again, every one of you, the presumption is if you follow Jesus, you will receive baptism. <clears throat> Galatians 2, or 3.26, more blessings and benefits of baptism and another way in which we die to the self. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So you, the, one of the benefits of resurrection is you become children. That you may think, oh man, in, uh, you know, we're all God's children. God has made us all, kind of. Partial truth, we are all orphans when we sin. That we, are, we experience a, a separation from God. Does he love us the same? Absolutely. Is he committed to us in full? Does he want to want to include us? Yes. Yet we have a responsibility to receive that gift, to meet him where he's ready to give it by dying to ourselves through faith in him. But then we experience that adoption. So now, when Jesus was baptized, and he comes out of the water, and God confirms you are my special son, in you I'm well pleased. He delights in him. We now get that said over us. So he experiences solidarity with us in every way but the sin and dies to himself with us in our sin and is reminded that he is God's son. So then when we embrace solidarity with him, that's when we are declared God's children. No longer orphans, but fully adopted. This is who you really are. This is what it means to have a true identity in God, that you are not the summation of your insides. You are who you are when the king of the universe looks on you with a gaze of delight and says, you are my beloved child, and you I'm well pleased. We experience that when we throw ourselves on to Jesus in faith. Faith is not having all the right attitudes and beliefs about Jesus. It is a sense of dependent confidence, a childlike trust, 
I'm putting my whole self into your hands. My past, present, future, my body, my soul, my mind is all in surrender to you. It is, again, a loss of self where I'm no longer trying to run my life. I don't put my trust in me. I don't put my trust in other humans. I put my trust in Jesus. And he says, well done, good of my faithful servant. You are now my child. For all of us are called to do this, to be baptized into Christ, and are clothed with Christ. I mentioned how the power of sin and death just drapes on you. You feel like you cannot separate yourself from what you've done, what's been done to you, what you've seen, and the fact that we are in this human uh, life of death and, and sin and weakness. But now we are removed those old clothes and put on new clothes. And when the early church was, being, was baptizing people in the first couple centuries, they would have a sense of change of clothes to reflect this. Those old clothes are done. We're going to throw them away with the water. We have new clothes to reflect this new life where Christ is now running the show here. And now we are all one. I love this in, in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That baptism is seen as the unifier. What actually marks us because none of us are entering into the family without dying to self to receive the Spirit. It's the great unifier that no one, no matter your past, will have a different entry point. Everyone is dead in the water and raised to new life. There's no uh, hierarchy. There's no hierarchy based on anything that humans measure goodness by. We instead all come to the level ground before the cross to receive baptism. And that be- this becomes the linchpin to get to what uh, Lisa was talking about, where we recognize now we are now one with others who, who claim the name of Jesus, even those who have been harmed by us, that we are now in union with them, that the actual roots of all sorts of racial reconciliation or all sorts of reconciliation is in what Jesus has done and experienced in baptism, that we share that with each other and that we are heirs for the future promise with him. Last text, uh, quickly, is that corresponding to that, he says, baptism now saves you. That seems more than just a symbol. But he's saying it's not just the removal of dirt from the flesh, but it is a sense of an appeal to God. You're throwing yourself on him for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives meaning and value to that space. And so I'm inviting us to cut through the sense of confusion. Is it just a symbol? What's the real meaning here? I don't, it's like I'm taking a bath in public. That's strange. And instead to see it as a gift that Jesus gives us bodies for a reason. He puts us in physical creation for a reason, and he gives us gifts to experience and taste and kind of have a memory for understanding what's happening when we get saved by him. Instead of just chalking it up in my mind of like, yes, I have faith, and yes, he gave me this, it's a sense of of, of, of a tangible, real-life, in-flesh experience to taste all that he's ready to give us, to experience a union with him, to die with him and be raised with him to become his adopted child, to receive forgiveness, and to receive freedom from the power of sin and death. So here's a quick summary. Look on the bullet points. Feel free to snap a picture of a sense of our experience of death with Jesus, where we're losing the old self, we're repenting and turning away from old ways of living, putting our whole trust in him, and desiring that he becomes the center of our life and release everything else to him. And what we get in that is new life. If you have a sense of like your life is not enough as it is and you need more and you want new life and you're like, what can I do? Come to receive Jesus and baptism. If you feel that sense of being draped by sin and death and you want to be free from that power, remember your baptism has done so. Or if you're looking for a way to respond to that and say, I don't want to be draped in this culture anymore. I want to be free from that. Meet Jesus and baptism. If you have a sense of sins that linger on you, a recognition of a a blame, 
a guilt, a power that you want freedom from, and you want to be a, like a, a confident assertion that that does not define you anymore, you meet Jesus in the waters of baptism. If you're tired of living life alone, and you want to have a permanent affirmation that you will never, ever be alone again because the king of the universe wants to live inside your physical body forever and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, baptism is how you respond to Jesus to remember that you have been given that. If you're tired of having a sense of being an orphan and you want to be reminded that you are an adopted child of God, do not forget your baptism where God has declared upon you, you are my child in whom I'm well pleased. I delight in you. I'm glad you exist. If you long to receive that, Meet Jesus in the waters. Decenter yourself and let Jesus be the center. Again, if you have a sense of loneliness and know that you can experience permanent belonging, you can travel across the world, find your way into a church, and they will know that you are their brother or their sister in baptism. That is a uniting thing. If you have a sense, like me, I'm scared to death of the future. I'm prone to be a fearful person. I love that in baptism, I'm reminded that I'm an heir of God's future promises, that one day he's going to set the world right, and in baptism, I'm reminded I get to be a part of it. I belong to Jesus forever, and there will permanently be a sense of rescue from this world that seems like it is under death and falling away. If you long for that, meet Jesus in the waters in baptism, and then your story can be similar to Paul's story. This is Paul's autobiographical statement, and it has been my life verse for a long time, that Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, the life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of the God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you've been baptized, this is your autobiography. Who are you? I am no longer, it's no longer I who live. I have died with Christ, my body, my old self, my sin, my death, all that is gone in the water, but now I've been emanated to new life with the Son of God living in me who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's how God sees you. He doesn't love us in general. He loves you and gave himself up for you entirely. There's no efforts or earning happening here. Baptism was where we meet the king of the universe to receive the gift that he is glad to give us, that he can't wait to give us, that he wants us to remember that we have with him permanently. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's pray.